The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, March 7th, the Rainbow Gel Pen Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And because Noreen is already in Australia practicing her vocals at the Sydney Opera House, uh, we have with us today Kristen Meinzer, co-host of By the Book, podcast about... I always want to call it a wild social experiment because I know that's in your descriptor and that's the part I feel like most captures it. Kristen, yeah. is that right? Yeah, but you yeah. know, I, I often refer to it as an intersectional radical feminist show disguised as a reality show comedy podcast that most people think is a self-help show. Wow. Yeah, that. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. They did. They, they, if You guys, you should check out the recent um, episode about astrology listeners, which apparently, Christian tells me, was very controversial because what? You either didn't take it seriously or took it took astrology too seriously, one or the other. Oh, people yes. got pissed about both of those. Yeah, people who yeah. really, really, really take astrology seriously felt that we didn't give it all of the credence it deserved. And then a lot of the people who question astrology out there thought that we gave it too too much legitimacy. <laughs> In other words, you cannot win. No, no. But at least everyone was <laughs> feeling win. something. Exactly. It's good to make people feel, right? right? Way to engage. <laughs> well, I'm excited to be here today, Hannah. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, okay, so our topics are, we're going to talk about Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of the scam blood company Theranos, our culture's obsession with her, Pen15, new Hulu comedy about middle school life. And we're also going to talk about Trump's women with the author of a new book, Nina Berlay, called Golden Handcuffs, The Secret History of Trump's Women. So we'll do like the mom, the wives, all of them, all the women. And then in our Slate Plus segment, June, do you want to say what we're going to discuss? Hannah, this week on our fourth segment, we will be asking, is it sexist to separate boys and girls in sports? And here's a little glimpse of that discussion. The thing that, that it was the way that he, he did the sort of separate but equal argument. Um, and, and since he lives in Colorado Springs, I like assume he's an evangelical Christian. And that's what's, I think that's what ticked me off at, or what set me off. It's like, that's what's all over the alt-right manosphere. It's like the women are made like this and men are made like this. And so I, you know, I feel like that is, I think what set me off is that's such a live idea in American mm, culture yeah. right now in certain segments of American culture. That If you would like to hear that and support Slate's journalism by joining Slate Plus, you can start a two-week free trial membership by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, let's get started with Elizabeth Holmes. She is the founder and CEO of the now defunct company, Theranos, that was supposed to revolutionize blood testing and also the healthcare industry. Whew, she told a professor at 19, let's start a company. And then she laid out a vision that she said would change the world. But now she's the subject of a best-selling book, a podcast, an HBO documentary, and an upcoming movie, also several federal investigations about how that company was at worst a fraud and at best a total failure. So June, just 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 for people who are not yet familiar with Holmes, she's bubbled up in so yeah. many different aspects of the culture, but just give us a basic kind of where she from and, and when did this all happen? Well, she's originally from the D.C. area. We know so much uh, trouble comes from there. Uh, of course, that's where Hannah is located. Um, she, at 19, she went to Stanford. Sorry. So she was a Stanford undergraduate, but after, I believe, two semesters at the age of 19, she dropped out because she had 
had this vision. And having fallen into some of the deep uh, Elizabeth Holmes rabbit holes uh, in some of these cultural artifacts that you just mentioned, Hannah, um, I have the feeling that she, like, she went into Stanford intending to drop out as quickly as possible. She, she made yes, some, totally. <laughs> she made some connections there uh, in both the ABC podcast, The Dropout, and uh, in uh, the HBO documentary that comes out in a couple of weeks. Uh, they, they start by talking with um, a, a woman uh, who was a professor at uh, Stanford, Dr. Phyllis Gardner. Uh, who, you know, listened to Elizabeth's uh, pitch and just said, well, that's great. Really love your vision, really love your enthusiasm, but that won't work. Like the rules of science will not allow that to work. But then she did something that she then did many times later. She went to an older man, an older white man, and the man fell for it. I mean, absolutely, hook, line and sinker, like so many other powerful older white men were to over the next few years. And she, you know, started this company. It was amazingly well funded. They had something like they raised something like nine hundred million dollars as a private company, no IPO. Uh, and it was about blood testing. And, and Elizabeth Holmes had a very clearly defined pitch. It was, you know, sh she apparently was afraid of, of blood draws and needles. And she said that, you know, it would revolutionize the world if instead of having to draw blood from veins, you could just literally prick someone's finger, take a couple of drops of blood, and then run hundreds of tests from that from those drops of blood uh, immediately and, uh, you know, get the, get the results immediately and reliably. And this would revolutionize healthcare, which indeed it would have, only the machines never worked. And uh, Elizabeth Holmes, it sure seems, was telling nothing but lies. Uh, and yet so many older men were taken in by her, either these people who were on her board, who were talking like former secretaries of state, former, you know, former generals, um, or... Uh, older white journalists like uh, Roger Parloff of Fortune or um, Ken Oletta of The New Yorker. Uh, and even though I actually had a chance to watch the HBO documentary, um, and even though there's nothing really new in it, just seeing those guys, like seeing what all these people look like, like, oh yeah, she had a type. She had a type of men who fell for her, hoot, line and sinker. Uh, she, I would just mention, was very young. As I said, she was 19 when she started the company. She looked very young. Uh, she was blonde uh, and she dressed in a uniform. Nothing wrong with that, so do I. But sh her uniform was based on uh, Steve Jobs's because she was very much following in the footsteps of Steve Jobs and, and sort of modeling herself on him. June, it sounds like to me, like the way you're telling this biography, you're pushing for the sort of like, like almost like a honey trap line on this like yeah. she's she just sold her like she just like seduced a lot of old white guys to give her a lot of money like you're taking that view well, i don't have quite that no, view of elizabeth I, holmes but no, it, no. but I, I would push back a little bit it's not i don't think like you know honey trap sounds like literal seduction and i think that these older men judging from you know how they describe their responses like they saw her as a monk henry kissinger henry kissinger uh you know, said that she's she's monk-like. They were very struck by the fact that she uniformed, that she only drank green mm -hmm. juice. Like, it, I don't think it was a sexual seduction, but I do think it was very gendered. Yeah, and I don't think that mm -hmm. it would have worked as well had she been just kind of another dude in Silicon Valley. I don't think any of these guys would have fallen for her so hard. And I'm not 
in the camp that she was doing the honeypot thing either. But I do think that she realized early on that these are people who would believe in her more, um, believe in her whether or not the science was legit behind her vision. And, I mean, her entire board was and, men. Yeah. Her board and, had no women on it. Yeah. And all white men. All older white men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Kristen, I'm curious of your view because do you, so June used the word she lied or she, which, which, you know, she did at some points, but it feels more complicated than a lie to me. Oh, at I least agree with was you. going on throughout. Yeah. I and mean, and since you are you deal in sort of hokery and faith, let me just let me just set up the basic facts. So the lot so there is this machine that they made that was supposed to do this blood test and it was basically never working. Like so they would hire young scientists straight out of school, they would keep testing it and testing it, and the test would constantly fail. It's that just it's it's very basic like that. It's not like complicated technology. It would just fail. Like they couldn't get this single prick to to produce any of the results that a regular blood test would produce. So that's what we mean. That's what they were covering up. So how do you see that? I really do see her. I mean, she gets compared to Steve Jobs a lot, and yeah. she was inviting those comparisons. But I do think that's what she was trying to be. She was trying to be a visionary, not an inventor. She was trying to be a marketer and um, have a team of very smart people actually create what she was envisioning, which is what Steve Jobs was very famous for, right? But um, I so I do think she went in thinking this was possible but the more things went wrong and the more things went wrong at that point you know she started to it it seems get desperate and start covering things up and uh, try backup plans and take blood and then send the blood to another lab entirely and she, she was doing a lot of duplicitous things but it sounds as though in the very beginning she really believed in the possibility that could come from this. Absolutely. I I agree completely with that. I think she really was a person with a vision. And I think that it is this combination of being an inventor. You know, again, that HBO documentary talks really takes the, the model of Thomas Edison, who, you know, believed that the electric light bulb was would work, but he actually couldn't quite get it working on to the schedule that he had committed to and that he had sold his investors on. But, he, you know, it, it's that what we now would call, although I don't believe Edison had this language available to him, fake it till you make it. So it's that combination of like, if you really believe in something that you can make something work, you'll you'll just kind of keep people holding on until you achieve it. Like you believe it's doable and you just keep pushing until it is. And the problem like that actually, I think often, not always, of course, but often works in Silicon Valley. If it is a a problem that has a potential solution that, you know, through software, all of that stuff. But science and the body and medicine really what is an area where actually you can't really fake it till you make it. People, if when you're giving, actually, when you're using actual people's actual blood and giving them actual results, fake it till you make it really can't be allowed to to work yeah it's not the same as the next geolocator app right right i mean that's the place where the story really takes a turn it's like that moment when you know because i think she still believes that she can make this test work and that her vision is true i think she still believes that to this day you know the place where the story goes really dark is when she starts to put these machines in the walgreens Mm -hmm. and you know people are actually getting test results based on these machines and actually making medical decisions based on the tests that they're getting and that's when it becomes like whoa like really bad um can we talk about like why 
first, why we believed in her, and second, why we're so fascinated in this story. So she took a lot of steps to sort of style herself, as you guys have mentioned. Some of them, they're like my most favorite is what she does with her voice. If you listen to the podcasts or mm-hmm. see her, like she she intentionally makes her voice like this, not necessarily to sound like a man, but I don't know what, what exactly is her thinking behind that voice. She just doesn't want it to sound ordinary. So her voice sounds kind of weirdly deep and guru-like. Um, so in addition to the Steve job stuff what do you think she was trying and like you said she dropped out like she was trying to cultivate a particular silicon valley prototype um but as female which turned out to be like unbelievably fascinating to so many people why what was that about well i think part of it it's such a male dominated space i mean we all know the term douche bro for a reason right and um to infiltrate that space uh emulating the high god of that whole universe, Steve Jobs, you know, I I can see why one would feel that's the best thing to do. And also being very, very young. And a number of reporters have said uh, she looked even younger than she actually was. And she was 19. So if you look like you're a 14 year old, um, I just think of what does a teenager try to do when they are trying to be taken seriously? And, you know, again and again, I think we forget she was a teenager when she started this. She wasn't a fully formed adult. Um, brains aren't really even matured until we're 25. She was Her brain was nowhere near mature when she was starting to come up with all these things. So I think that um, part of it was her youth. Part of it was entering into a culture that is famously misogynistic and douche bro And part of it really was her belief in trying to make this work. But as far as the question of fascination with her, I think part of that also is we're in a moment where we have bigger than ever. We've always loved true crime, but I feel that true crime are interest in it has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And anytime a woman is at the center of a true crime, we especially love it, whether it's, you know, being a serial murderer or being a giant swindler. I think our culture loves it when a woman's at the center of these things because it goes against our best beliefs about women. Yeah. I mean, I I agree with that. And I think it's very key that it is health. I mean, a lot of... I, I really am fascinated to know what these particular types of older men who, again, are, you know the the greatest and goodest you know there the, the, there are mm-hmm. a couple of former secretaries of state there are you know as i say a general that these were you know david boys yikes um but um i don't know i don't know what it was that they saw in her but by god they saw it in her like the dropout is really strong on how george schultz former secretary of state george schultz who was on the theranos board sided with elizabeth over his own grandson who worked at Theranos and who became a whistleblower because there was a lot to blow the whistle on. There was a lot of deception uh, that, again, people were wanted to reveal because they were afraid that patients, real people, were going to suffer uh, because of the deception that was happening in the company. And so they, you know, he was a whistleblower. And because they were... it. Another thing that the dropout is very good is, like, the extent to which Theranos used legal power, legal strength, you know, high-powered lawyers to make people, to try to make people fall in line, to try to keep things secret that shouldn't have been secret, um, and that they, you know, essentially just tried to cow people. And the, you know, the Theranos lawyers, um, you know, were absolutely uh, harsh on Tyler Schultz, and they caused, essentially, because George Schultz sided with Elizabeth rather than his own grandson, who, again, having seen this documentary, seems to be a very bright young man, um, 
it cost his family like four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. Which great that they had it, but like, what was it that made this guy side with a stranger rather than his own family? Now again. This is complicated because I really don't want these powerful, powerful families to stick together. At the same time, it seems very revealing that he would, you know, that was that would be where his allegiance was placed. So I am very curious what it was. That thank you for bringing that up because that's an amazing part of the story. That dramatic showdown between him and his grandson. I think it's faith. Like that's mm-hmm. why I'm glad. Like Kristen, you're here. It's just like her ability. It's almost like like a, she had a cult leader. Yeah, like her ability yeah. to, to to sort of win people's faith. And and despite the fact that she was young, despite the fact that she was a woman, like despite what she looked like, all of these things, um, they thought, well, if she can hold the faith that strongly, then it must be real. Like there must be something here because what brought her down, you know, which is John Kerry in the Wall Street Journal and his reporting in the book Bad Blood, which I read, which is a fantastic yeah, I read book. Too after the um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's amazing about it is that um, the sentence that he highlights, which is a sentence from the Ken Aletta profile, which got him really suspicious, is so dumb when you look <laughs> at it. Like, I'm going to read the sentence because it's so dumb so what dumb. started this downfall. She told him, for instance, that one process occurred, and this is, again, from a New Yorker profile, a chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample, which is translated into a result, which is then reviewed by certified laboratory personnel. That's like AI wrote that. That's like a bad (laughs) translation into English, which is like there's a chemical reaction and the machine reads it. It is just says absolutely nothing. And that when he read that, like like so you you see what I'm saying is like people were so intoxicated. They missed just like A equals B equals. It was like very basic what she was not able to do. Well, yeah. And I do think that I agree with you completely. And I think it's that's why it's very relevant that it was in the healthcare space because we know that our system is messed up. We don't have faith in it to a, to a great extent. Um, you know, what she was saying about, you know, the costs of healthcare and wanting to revolutionize it um, is really like, yes, we, if there was some magic solution that was just a little box. Yeah, gr- exactly. Yeah. Bring it on. Like if it could work, that would be amazing. Unfortunately, again, it really just doesn't seem like it can or could. If there's just certain physical mm-hmm. scientific limits um, and really putting so much focus on this box must be this size. Uh, it, you can only take two drops. Like putting these weird constraints on it meant that almost certainly it couldn't ever have worked. But the idea of revolutionizing healthcare and, you know, this weird, under-examined sort of field, subfield of uh, blood tests and and diagnostic tests, which is really, I'm not saying it's shady, but like it's a hugely expensive part of the uh, healthcare system, which is essentially a duopoly right now. Like, yeah, it would be great if that could be uh, disrupted, but it has to work. Right. Of course. I'm going to ask you guys the last question because I the thing that is like like the thing that gets me about this story is I I can't tell if I find it incredibly depressing that a woman tried to inhabit 
this mystique space that, you know, 100% belongs to men, both mystique as a heroine and mystique as a villain, and then just utterly, like, utterly failed in that space and got made fun of, whether that's, like, positive, whether that's good or bad for women, this is, like, a sort of a version of an is it sexist question. Like, is it good that, you know, essentially she went through the arc that, you know, many a male villain made off swindler whoever has gone through so is that is that kind of progress because it's like we see you know women can do it men can do it or is it just real depressing because it shows that the mystique space does actually belong to men and she's just such a complete failure at doing it right Mm. i mean i i think she's more complex than a madoff madoff is just like he's a thief yeah and I think she's more complex and more interesting also than Steve Jobs, for that matter. She just has a lot more happening that um, could be construed in multiple ways with her. And I like that. It's um, one of those Hollywood problems is usually that women get to be only one dimensional. And she's a character who is multidimensional. And I'll be curious to see how Hollywood interprets her when Jennifer Lawrence plays her. Um, because, uh, I mean... I I just think that the more dimensions we can allow women to have, whether we're celebrating those or uh, tearing them apart, it's better for women. Yeah, I I find it very difficult to take a lot of positive messages from this experience, from her story um, thus far. She's still very young. Um, But I also... um, like I'm glad too that we're revealing this weird obsession that we have with you know the the leader who will emerge um you know this once in a lifetime once in a in a century um you know magical force who's who's you know just so far ahead and so because like there's still some possibility that she does see things that the rest of us don't see that she is aware of some chemistry that the rest of us don't but so i'm glad that there are new people inhabiting that role um but ultimately i find it very depressing all right well listeners if you have views if you have read the book listen to the podcast she exists on all platforms and if you engaged on any of them um, please let us know what your views are on elizabeth holmes at the waves at slate.com all right guys it's time to discuss pen 15 which i'm so excited about this is a new Hulu show starring two comedian actress friends, Anna Conkle, Maya Erskine. It's a really weird original take on a teenage comedy. The trick of it is that Anna and Maya are both 30-something actresses playing 7th graders, um, but all the other 7th graders are played by actual 7th graders, uh, which could be a trick that grows old, but I feel like it's actually the opposite at all. It allows for all kinds of like weird and liberating strange things to happen. Um, so, uh, Kristen, you want to give us the basic setup, like like maybe mm-hmm. just who are these who are these actresses? Like how did this show come about and just kind of what's the basic premise outside of what I said? Yeah. So Anna Conkle and Maya Erskine are friends who met when they were in college at NYU and they're both actors and comedians and they wanted to make um a show about all of the sorts of things that they have in common as best friends and they really bonded over similar experiences they had in their junior high years, even though they didn't know each other back then. And um, notably, when they were in junior high, it would have been the year 2000. And so the show takes place in 2000, and it really captures all of the kinds of things specific to girls at that age at that time. And we're talking about everything from 
idolizing mean, popular girls, to feeling shame about masturbation, to playing along with racism against yourself or against others. And it also showcases, oftentimes in very delightful ways, the very extreme closeness of girls that age with their best friends, the kind that involves tears and desperate allegiance and the desire to have firsts together and to report back everything to each other all the time, regardless of what that thing is, must report it to my friend for it to be real. And I just, I I think it's such a special show. It took me a little while to warm up to it, but when it starts getting into very complex issues and its treatment of it and how the casting of those two adult women in these roles allows for explorations in different ways. I, I just, I really appreciated that. And it really ingratiated me to the show. Yeah. I'm like so into this show. <laughs> it is so we- weird. It I mean, weird. it is so weird. I want to talk about like Maya's character for a minute. I mean, just as a, that is not an Asian female type, just to stick to that for a minute that you ever see on TV. Like she's, the opposite of the hot girl um and she's she's so i mean she's she's a real break from usual stereotype in the way that we are breaking from stereotypes all over the place so that um what did you guys think of that like just how she was as like she's a she's like a goofy unhot like incompetent but also just like somehow insanely charismatic person like she's not your usual misfit she has she she's both invisible and just like insanely visible like she's both of those things all the time you know I just I mean as an Asian American person myself I looked at her and just thought thank god this person exists (laughs) in this universe I am so thankful that she exists in this universe for so many reasons for I mean how she deals with playing along with racism against herself in particular, it just, it gutted me because I thought, I remember that. I remember doing that when I was that age. I remember, like, at one point she's like, I'm only a little Japanese. And I remember saying the same thing about myself, about being Korean. And the heartache of looking back on that, it's just, it's so sad. And I think about what it's like to be that age and to have shame over things that you shouldn't be ashamed of. And um, this was an era where, I mean, and I think we still slightly live in this, where girls and masturbation never the two shall meet in conversation never 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 unless it's to ridicule them uh back in this era beverly hills 90210 used as the ultimate insult against a female character that she masturbated Mm -hmm. that was the best way to ridicule is to say donna martin masturbate so um the fact that she is awkward and in some ways self-hating but still loves her family and loves to masturbate but is also ashamed of it (laughs) and is also very performative but also um, treated as if she's very ugly all of these things together I'm just I'm so grateful this kind of character exists in the world yeah I I find yeah I mean I I gotta say guys the masturbation scene I'm just one sentence here like the way they lead into the masturbation oh scene is amazing it's amazing are we I'm not talking about some throbbing it's amazing are we talking about some throbbing and some hello it was so good it was so good anyway June what, what were you saying I was about to say that I agree completely with everything you said and yet like I think it's a fantastic show I didn't really like watching it because it is so effective at putting you in that world and reminding you how horrible a lot of things that happen at that age feel at the time. Like you can look back in them and have pride or like, wow, I got through that or whatever. But in the moment, they're just 
almost a little bit too good at like inhabiting the awkwardness and shame and um you know kind of hatred or what feels like hatred and and it kind of can put you back in that like oh I thought I'd grown out of that I thought I'd uh kind of shed that and shake shaken it off and it's a little bit too good at it to be almost to be fun um you know the actually the masturbation episode is is less painful than others like because we all recognize that it is something that's new it's actually like i don't think i mean unless there is something you know like carry like it's not something that you kind of get pointed at on the stage at school kind of thing whereas so many of the other things that they're talking about like your relationships with your friends what way that people talk about you or you know call you names just other things like that um the kind of changes that your body goes through they feel more just you know more stabby daggers rather than oh that's awkward you know like so um some of it is just really hard to watch if you had an awkward Oh, I agree with you. So, I mean, I'm not saying this was laugh out loud for yeah. There were so many moments I felt gutted watching the show. Yeah. I really just thought, oh, the pain of it. But I'm curious about what you two think about the fact that we have two women in their 30s playing these characters. Does that make it easier for you guys to watch this? What did you guys think it added to it? And when I first read that, I thought, oh, this is going to be like a one-trick pony. But then I realized it's brilliant. It just taps into all the things June was just talking about, which is like it's a very um, like literal manifestation of how you feel at that age where you're just like in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're, you're these sort of you're this kind of creature that's caught between playing with dolls and 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 also like you have boobs and maybe you got your period it's like this it's this it's they they kind of literally manifest that by being a bunch of 31 year olds in the middle like in a sea of seventh graders you know so it's kind of um it kind of adds to the theme in a certain way so that's one thing i think is good about it they're remarkably good at inhabiting seventh grade which i think gets to what you speak at speak about June which is like how alive it is like how un- how so close to the surface yeah. is kind of our emotions and our pose in the world as a seventh grader it's so accessible so they make it seem like oh yeah like at 31 you could just completely inhabit that space right away yeah. as an actress because it's like really really present for all of us and then it creates these weird things of like the awkwardness of like being a tall girl crushing <laughs> on this like teeny tiny child which actually is what it feels like at 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 you know that age, but but they actually like are a grown up crying cry in the show, right. like thinking about whether to make out, and they actually make they are there's that there's a very funny scene where they there's this sort of girl party that they stumble into, and the kind of there's five girls and the five boys walk in, and <laughs> one of them is paired up with an actual eight year old, but he's hot. And everyone Let's not keeps having the same conversation. <laughs> They keep saying like, you know, like, like he's, but he's eight, but he's so hot. He's eight, but he's so, he's so fucking hot. It's like, and the fact that we're laughing, like somehow because 
they they just they turn the joke like eight thousand million different ways. The fact that they're like a couple of thirty one year olds walking in a sea of seventh graders, and I never find it depressing. And I think this is a total taste. I think June like half many many people will just it's like the movie Eighth Grade. Like it's yeah. just too mm. too too painful yeah. Yeah. to watch. But like yeah. but but for me, it's just so damn funny. And Maya is insane as yeah. a comedic talent. Yeah. Like yeah. this has been mentioned a lot, and maybe we can queue up a minute of this. Play coach, just give me a chance. Let's see that in instant slow mo. It's when Maya does an impression of Jim Carrey in the East Ventura days. Yeah, Yeah. damn. Like her charisma is crazy. Like that's an, that's again, it's like an unusual. You know, you're playing a loser, but you she has an ability to attract to like just completely command a room. You know, and also an ability to be nowhere. Um, and I, another thing to mention about having thirty ones playing thirteen year olds, like I have seen plays in which adults play kids. Uh, there's a, a British, a very famous British TV play. I think it's called Blue Remembered Hills. But this is different because. It allows them to do things that you really kind of either can't show actual kids doing or really can't even ask kids to act out, even like if you're going to do tricks, because like it's it's too much for for kids to deal with um, or to, you know, it's it's like it's unethical, but you can have adults doing those things and showing those things and also when like when um when anna is making out with the eight-year-old she's actually making out with her boyfriend her adult boyfriend and you can see his stubble like you're not confused at wow is she kissing an eight-year-old like it's not creepy and it allows them to have these kind of frank conversations like i really wouldn't want to see a girl who really was 13 doing some of these things but it's I'm really excited that a 31-year-old can really get into it. In terms of broader genres, June, I feel like this taps into two different things that are happening a lot, both of which I find just totally delightful, and I wonder which is interesting to you. One is just, like, the female friendship. Now, that's an old trope, but we've had so much good. You know, this is, like, in the mode of broad city, just, Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. like freak friends to die for. Like, we die for you kind of friendships and insecure. And there's just, like, a bunch of them out there now, which are so great. And I guess Girls was a version of that, but it's sort of different if it's in the Romy Michelle, like, just two-girl mode. And then um, the other one is, like, the teenage sex, like, the show Sex Education, which I also think is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. And and um, Dairy Mouth. Girls had a little yeah, bit Dairy of that. Mouth, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Michelle from Dairy. And so Girls. I wonder what you think. What do you? Which do you do you feel like there's some opening up in both of those categories? Like they've become more interesting or different than they used to be? Yeah, I think one thing that's happening is if this really is related to the growth of streaming. Um, you know, I don't think that you could, especially not right off the bat in the sort of, with the speed that has to happen on broadcast television, even today, you couldn't have built a big enough audience for it to be for it to last on broadcast television. But these days, uh, when Hulu's looking for originals, it's going to take a chance on something like this. Now, they haven't renewed it for a second season yet, um, but, uh, you know, it's getting talked about a lot. It's getting attention. And so I think, like, that's one of the ways that the the streaming revolution has just kind of allowed more things to to blossom, more, you know, stories that are actually you know, half the population, but as far as the people who make decisions about uh, programming are concerned, still are interpreted or viewed as 
narrow stories. Um, just to mention another really beautiful friendship uh, show that I love, which has now been cancelled, um, but Playing House, that like this show, has two real-life friends at the centre who also write it. Um, and I, I see, really see a lot of that where they, they're, you know, they're not going back to uh, middle school, but they're, you know, they were just the really exploring the tiny things, those little moments in friendships that... Um, that you just don't see or haven't thus far seen uh, reflected, like that's really exciting. And, you know, hopefully it won't be so exciting because it won't have to be having this very basic thing seem new, uh, but it's great for the moment. And uh, yeah, I do think this is a twofer because it has the female friendship and also the kind of the coming of age, the figuring out sex and relationships and, and how friendships change too, as long as long as well as their bodies changing, the way that they interact together is also transforming, and that's really fascinating. Kristen, can I ask you in the, you know, for me, the female French, a lot of the awkward, painful things is completely saved by the friendship. You know, like if I think back to Sixteen Candles and the kind of that genre of sort of a girl alone trying to figure herself out, like if you put a friend in the picture, it just makes anything tolerable for me. And I wonder if you if you felt that way watching it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's what saves it from being eighth grade to me because eighth grade, I have to say, was just the the most painful movie I've seen in years. Watching it, I thought, oh, my God, how much older am I? Am I like th more than three times the age of this girl in this movie? And this still feels so recent and it hurts so much. But watching it then in Pen15 where we have two really tight girlfriends yeah. who are ride or die. I would do anything for you. You are the most beautiful person I have ever met. And I love you forever, forever and ever and ever until eternity times a thousand. I mean, that kind of friendship it, I mean, that is what helps a lot of us survive, and it's yeah. so special. And it made me feel so grateful for some of those girlfriends I had at that age because that age is shit for most <laughs> of us. I mean, it's a really, really bad time for lots of us in so many ways in how the world treats us and how we treat ourselves mm -hmm. in both of those ways. It's horrible. And to have those special kinds of girlfriends in your life uh, – it, it's something we don't see enough in the media either. We see a lot of rivalries. We see a lot of friends who might be in competition with each other or be frenemies. But that kind of intense young girl friendship is so real. And in a way, it almost mirrors like a romance as far as mm -hmm. the emotional intensity that's involved in it and the loyalty. And it was, I thought it was beautiful to see that. That was the one thing. Well, that plus the odd casting of, <laughs> of our leads that kept it from becoming eighth grade to me and turning it off and leaving and crying for six days. <laughs> would you would you allow me to end this segment on the like the beautiful like their beautiful declaration of love oh, for each other? Yes, the gel pens, please do. Yes. You're my rainbow gel pen and a sea of blue and black writing utensils. <laughs> I'm going to search for the rest of my days for someone who I can say that to because it's so beautiful. <laughs> As a stationary right. fan, I re <laughs> that really resonates for me. <laughs> I'm sure I was thinking of you, June, actually, when I heard that. Uh, all right. Well, uh, listeners, uh, if you're watching Pen15, we would love to hear your thoughts. Please write to us at thewaves at slate.com. Well, let's move on to our next topic, Trump's women. Nina Burley has written a new book looking at Trump's relationships with women, his mother and grandmother, his wives and girlfriends, his daughters. It's called Golden Handcuffs, The Secret History of Trump's Women, and it gives you a new view of how Trump learned to think what he thinks about women. So we have Nina with us today, and we are going to pepper her with our 
obsessions and questions about the Trump women. Hi, Nina. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Sure. Um, so where are you now, by the way, just so we know? I am I hear on the birds. U.S. Mexico. I'm on the U.S. Mexico border at a dude ranch, looking out over the big, beautiful wall. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. <laughs> I know, I know. We're so jealous. Like, uh, but you you can't escape Trump land there either, because you said U.S. Mexico border. No, I um, actually had dinner last night. I had dinner last night, and these there are these guys here who are. Um, I see one of them walking across the the grassland right now, there are these people down here working for the U.S. government contracted to build forward operating bases mm. for the Marines. So we are, we're entering mm. full militarized border situation down here. Wow. Quite interesting, actually. Wow. But that's for another topic. Wow. <laughs> that's for another topic. Um, well, we're always tempted yeah. to start with Melania and Ivanka, but we're not going to, um, because I think we should start with, June, is it the mother or the grandmother that you have intense interest in? It's the mother, right? It's the mother. I'm obsessed with his mother because as soon as I heard that she grew up on Tong, a very, very isolated island in the Outer Hebrides, there were 10 of them in a tiny house. Um, you know, her father was a crofter. It's just hard to imagine a bigger contrast with the way that Trump is today. You know, very poor, very working class uh, and an immigrant when she was just 18. Um Obviously, too, his grandmother was an immigrant. Given this really strong first-generation immigrant presence in his life, I'm really struck by his obsession with immigrants and his negative obsession with immigrants. Nina, where do you, how do you kind of explain that weird contrast and contradiction? Well, you're absolutely right that um, in, with an, in another family... The, these up-by-the-bootstrap stories, especially the one you just described of his mother who grew up in muck boots with probably two dresses to her name and got an eighth-grade education uh, and came to America and then became a very wealthy woman. Uh, in any other family in politics, these stories would be, uh, you know, blazoned on, uh, on, on campaign uh, slogans and, you know, he would be talking about them. But he's not. And I think that you've got you're you're onto something with the mother, with your interest in the mother, because I think the mother is key to the, to to his sense of outsiderness, his yearning for uh, luxury and and the royal. Um, it's it's sort of the rosebud. It's it's the go, it's the golden tea. Um, and the reason is his mother. Uh, there are two things about the Isle of Lewis. One, you, 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 you've got it. It's a, it's a, it was a crofter uh, island and uh, a fishing island, a uh, lot of poverty. Um, but there was a castle. There is a castle in Stornoway across like a, a, a moat from the downtown or the, the harbor area, basically. And um, it's got crenellated roof. It's got uh, beautiful windows. It's got beautiful doors. And you can picture this young girl. Fisher, 10th child of a fisherman, across the moat looking at this great green lawn uh, where this noble family had a castle. And after, in her teens, she got on a, on a steamer and emigrated to the United States, uh, following some older sisters to New York City. Now, in those days, the great families of New York liked to have maids, butlers, footmen, and valets from the British Isles. 
And her sisters were already part of this community. Some of them were married, I think, to, to butlers. And she entered the United States, and I couldn't believe it when I went to the New York Public Library and looked at the census to find out where she lived. Her first address, she was about 17 years old, was as a maid at the bottom of a retinue of about 25 servants in the Carnegie household. She worked and lived with, worked for and lived with Louise Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie's widow, the widow of the wealthiest man in America at that time, or one of the wealthiest men, a steel magnate. And she developed, I think, out of that, a, a, an obsession for the royal, a, a yearning for um, the trappings of luxury, an understanding of America and what it meant to be an American and a wealthy American um, with access to uh, luxury from that experience. And her son, Donald, um, inherited, inherited that whole, where, whereas his father and his grandmother were these thrifty Germans who, who sneered at Marianne McLeod, really. Um, they, you know, he, he writes about when um, Queen Elizabeth, when, the, when Queen Elizabeth was, was crowned, uh, it was a big telev- television, televised extravaganza, and his mother couldn't be torn away from the television for three days. And he talks about it's like it's like too good to be true. The idea that Trump comes from this, you know, mother who was just obsessed. Oh, with it's like a fairy and, like, tale. It's like to, a fairy tale. And similarly, you know, the wives who come yeah. from from shoemaking villages in, in, in middle Europe. It's like a fairy tale. It's um, it's fascinating. Well, I have a question. Um, going back in Donald Trump's history about these women and where they came from, and you mentioned his grandmother who came from Germany, and his paternal grandmother actually was the founder of the Trump organization, and yet she seems completely lost to history, even though she was the one who set off everything that has happened um, all the way up to the present of Donald Trump being in the White House right now. But uh, powerful women don't usually seem to hold a place in Donald Trump's heart as things to celebrate. So how do, you know, how do those contradictions reckon themselves in him? Well, you're right. Apparently they don't. A powerful women, um, he, he fears women at a, at a kind of primal level, um, which I think comes down from his father and maybe from his grandmother. But they, um, so, yes, the grandmother was, a, was the opposite of his mother, um, a thrifty resourceful, widowed young with three young children, uh, left with a nest egg that her husband had accumulated running brothel saloons in the, uh, in the Wild West for the, in, during the gold rush. Um, and she took that money um, and turned it into, um, she put it into a, a house. She built a house next door, borrowed money, built a house, and started a company she called Trump, Elizabeth Trump and Son. She incorporated it in the 1920s. And her son was a teenager at the time, Fred. Um, I think he was 13. So there's no way Fred Trump incorporated the Trump company. His, his mother did. And, yes, of course, in, you know, in another family, again, you, you, would see, you could see them using this as a, a, a way to bring women over to, to his side. It would be celebrated. Um, and, no, it's not celebrated. It's never been um, mentioned the Trump organization's history gives all credit to to uh, Fred Trump, who did work like an ant and who did who did really um, build it up. 
but uh, the mother was always in his life. Elizabeth Christ Trump, the German immigrant, lived across the street from them. Fred Trump built a, a house for her, an apartment building, and she lived in an apartment. She was in their house all the time. She was a, a I would say, somewhat fearsome presence in their family until she died when Donald was almost 20. So he has this kind of, you know, the example of the mother who wants branded luxuries, um, you know, the swooping coif, the blonde hair, which we see now in him, the, um, the, the tra- all the trappings of luxury that his, his wives want. Uh, that's what he thinks of, uh, of a, one kind of wo- woman. And then he has these other women in his life, like the grandmother, who are efficient, who take care of things, who keep the place running. And, of course, in his business, he did, he did have some women like that around him. He always actually has a woman around who he trusts. And, and, and these are women, you know, he had these, these administrative assistants or secretaries who were the doorkeepers at the Trump Organization. And he had just two of them, one for 20 or 30 years and the other one who's still there, I think, Rona Graf. And they are, they are trusted deeply. And the reason they're trusted deeply is that, because he is, he, his interactions with males are all about alpha male and domination and doggy dog and, and literally other men are out to kill him and kill each other. They're, the people that he trusts are these, these females, but they're the women that he has no carnal relationships with. No, no, they're not ranked by hotness, which is what you know, his interaction with all other women is about. It's... You... You, you do have that point in the book where you quote someone saying that he thought of women as consumables. It's like, it's interesting to think of him going from these, almost, you know, these very powerful, like, like large figures of women in his life. And then suddenly there's this also these kind of dispensable women, you know, the women at the parties. They're almost sort of call, the call girl party type woman that he is in constant contact with. Um, where does that attitude well, come from? Well, I think it comes from his dad, For first of all. Fred Trump um, had a mistress and had, had, you know, had a reputation as a philanderer, had a, had a lifelong mistress who was part of the family. Family members told me that she was part of the family uh, up to the point where Marianne, uh, Mary Trump was, was not accepting as a mistress, but everyone else knew about her, including the children. Um, and, um, you know, uh, Fred Trump used, used the female um, to sell his products, um, you know, pretty girls in high heels um, on the boardwalk in Coney Island. Um, you know, I think part of it is cultural. Donald Trump comes from that, you know, Rat Pack, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, Dean Martin, early 60s kind of, um, and also the Hugh Hefner model of, um, of, a, of a 1960s man. That's his you know, uh, harem, harems of women. Um, but also, I think after Ivana, after the failure of the first marriage, the first marriage failed because he has said she wanted to be a working woman, and she did. She, she was a successful working woman. In fact, got to the point where she was, in at least in his mind, in competition with him. He jettisoned her and, um, you know, took up with much, much younger um, uh, outsider and, you know, from, you know, the young woman from Georgia who arrived in New York and wanted to be an actress and a model. And at that point, I think in his life, you see him becoming um, what he is now or what he became, was until he became president, which is this kind of brander 
and commodifier of the feminine, um, a Pygmalion who liked to um, mold women into the Trump-branded female. You know, you mentioned earlier that Donald Trump is afraid of women, but it seems that the one woman he's not afraid of is Ivanka, well, actually. Well, there's, What's there's, going on with him and Ivanka? Um, he's not, I'm sure there's, there's a, a lot, lot going, going on, on. with him. Um, I mean, look, she's his daughter, uh, first of all, and she is, you know, he's a narcissist, right? And so she is his creation, and he's said that. She's, you know, she's, he's, she is an extension of him. Um, she is... Unlike everyone else in the family, except for the, her siblings, un- unlike the previous generations, she is to the manor born, right? So instead of um, being Mary McLeod outside the castle looking in at the window or Donald, you know, assaulting Manhattan and trying to become part of it with his building his own castle in his Versailles at the top of it, right? She and, he, and, and, and always really doomed to be an outsider. Um, she is that person. You know, she talks with the prep school accent. She went to the best schools. She was until uh, her father started running for election as a neo-Nazi, you know, uh, belonged to the Manhattan elite, um, the millennial rich kids, um, you know, the progressive Manhattanites with, you know, sophisticates, art collecting. Um, So she is that person that he wanted to be, but she's in female form. And that's even better because now when, when, you know, when people look at, I say this in the book, you can Google, um, you know, obviously you can Google weird pictures of Donald and Ivanka and they all come up, right? There's Ivanka at eight years old sitting on his lap. There's Ivanka dancing on his lap when she's 13. There they are in a bed together. Uh, there they are, you know, slipping into a, um, an Italian car, uh, in a, in, you know, in, in a Trump ad, um, and people look at those pictures and they listen to him saying things on TV like, boy, if she wasn't uh, my daughter, I'd be dating her or, you know, ranking her hotness with Howard Stern. And people who loathe him and have a visceral response to him think, oh, he's, a, you know, he's incesting her. And she's, a, you know, she's his, um, you know, some kind of a, they have some kind of like incestuous relationship. And my my take on it is, and I do say in the beginning of the book, I have no idea who he's, whether he's having sex with Melania or any. I don't go into the, his sex life really. I don't think that it's fair to, I, you know, to say that those two are that that's the nature of the relationship. I think the highest compliment he could give a woman is, "Oh, baby, you're so hot," and so he's complimenting his daughter that way. But also, um, she is an extension of him, and I think. She's the, she is the future of the Trump brand. If the Trump brand survives Mueller and, and the, um, the Southern District of New York and the Attorney General of the State of New York and everything else, if she doesn't go to jail, um, she could possibly run for office. Uh, my, um, one of my sources is an expert in, in money laundering, a, a federal um, a former prosecutor. And he, he said um, her role would be where these guys were in the room uh, cutting these deals, if Ivanka was there, they would look at her as the stamp of, I am Donald Trump, and I approve of this proceeding. So that's how important that she, how important she is. Mm-hmm. And he trusts her. Of course he trusts her. And that's one woman that he trusts who he's not having a carnal relationship with. 
Nina, let me ask you a, a last question, which is looking out at, you know, knowing all you know about the Trump women and seeing how it's actually unfolded, particularly with Melania and Ivanka, is there anything that surprises you? Anything that goes against what you learned, um, he, how he behaves or how the women around him behaved? Like, has anyone kind of stepped out of role in a way that startled you during the administration so yeah, far? Yeah, I think Melania is is, um, is kind of stepping out of out of role. Um, you know, I the the Michael Wolf um, you know story about her crying on election night, and then followed by the free Melania meme, and all you know, progressive women looking at her as like Rapunzel in the tower who needed to be rescued, or Bluebeard, you know, lost in Bluebeard's cave, and all of these sort of memes about her. Um, I think we're wrong. I think that she is, um, you know, one hundred percent behind him. Most of the time, I think that she is um, she she did get into the relationship um, because she's interested in security and, again, branded luxuries and branded luxuries of the West, which which she was deprived of raised on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Uh, But I think she's stepping out and I think she's stepping out because she sees him threatened. And, And you did see her start to step up more right after the 2018 midterms when Suddenly, his cloak of invincibility was ripped off, and all of a sudden, she steps up. And I think she's she's got some steel in her. Um, you know, I compare her with Elena Ceausescu. I think she's somebody who it could be the she she could be the autocrat's wife, and really, really is behind him a hundred percent on that. Interesting. Interesting. Um, All right. Well, we will see. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, the book is called Golden Handcuffs, The Secret History of Trump's Women. It is out and available now. Uh, And Nina, thank you for sharing with us. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. Sure. All right. Bye, kids. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for getting up early. Okay, let's do our recommendations. June, why don't you go first? So my recommendation this week is something that I had been looking forward to reading for so long that I, by the time I was able to read it, I was a little bit afraid that it wouldn't live up to my expectations. But I am here to tell you that it has exceeded them. It is brilliant. It is the book Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe. Um, <gasps> it's so good. It's so, so good. good. And it is, I mean, first of all, he's a fantastic writer. Um, you know, he's written for Slate in the past. Um, were you in the TV club with him about Mad Men or was that another season? Oh, I don't think so. OK, um, I mean, it's no, been another season. So, yeah. Anyway, he's he's he wrote for Slate uh, for many years now. He's a, a staff writer at The New Yorker. A fantastic writer. But, um, you know, I certainly did. I've never been to Belfast even now, but it is the time that I grew up. And although I did not live among bombs going off and sectarian violence and just sectarian divisions, like I grew up in a very similar kind of physical home and just the fact that he gets that so right, even though, you know, he wasn't alive then, he wasn't in Derry, he wasn't in Belfast. Um, I just, it is both fascinating, beautifully written. It feels right to me. Uh, and it's just an incredibly interesting story that is kind of part of this like huge thing, this like the way in which, you know, six counties of Ireland or uh, a part of Britain, depending on your point of view, you know, there was 
there was a war going on there for many years. There were, you know, 500 people killed in one year. Like, it was a source of immense trauma and dislocation. And we kind of don't really talk about it much, except currently in the contents, in the context of the backstop and the EU and Brexit, which is a very kind of neutral and weird way to, you know, weird kind of consequence and, and uh, kind of trickling down of, of what was this kind of weird episode that, you know, probably isn't quite dead yet, but um, it's, it's just a remarkable book. I highly recommend it. I absolutely second that. I saw him speak at a book event mm. and read the book and he also was at uh, he was also on the political gab fest last week being interviewed by my husband he's such a good spokesman for his own book such mm -hmm. an absolutely beautiful writer and it's also an amazing story so i really second that um, I'm going to give two quick recommendations. Uh, one is a cookbook, which is Noreen's Territory. Since Noreen's not here, I decided to do it myself. It's the new Sarah Dickerman book. It's hey, called Secrets yeah. of Second, of, yeah, Secrets of Great Second Meals. Um, it's it's a cookbook I've always wanted someone to write because it more mimics how I cook, which is not so much like Blue Apron or get special ingredients. Like I cook, you know, we cook every day. It's like you have to feed people and there's stuff in the refrigerator and I love to cook, but it's a much more practical, handy, like like kind of using leftovers and turning over certain foods into other foods. And, you know, it's like how you always have that kind of Thanksgiving leftover cookbook but but it's like that every day which is actually functionally how my household works um and so so i really like this it's called secrets of great second meals by sarah dickerman um it, it's out just now and the other thing i would say is uh high maintenance which a show that i have always loved i have loved i i just love the kind of pace and beat of that show and the new season if you haven't checked it out the first episode especially is very beautiful and kind of takes a turn from the history of the show. So I recommend that as well. Kristen, what do you have? Um, I'm going in a very different direction from both of you. There is a relatively new podcast. There are fewer than 10 episodes and it is delicious. It is candy. You don't listen to this because you're high minded. It's called <laughs> Trashy Divorces. And <laughs> In the show, the hosts Alicia and Stacy each choose a different divorce to profile in each episode. Sometimes one will go oh historic and one will go modern. Sometimes uh, they'll just do a theme like uh, uh, modern rock stars. And, um, and they showcase all the ups and downs and everything in these marriages. And one of my favorite episodes was about um, the British royals in the last 50 years. Um, but they uh, are... You know, it's a it's a relatively new show, and some of the early episodes you can tell it's a new show. One host will talk over the other way too much; it'll sound very messy. But uh, uh, amongst all those messes, there are moments of just utter delight. They have a sense of humor about everything. They're willing to do all of the research and then laugh at the research, and then give a trashy rating to each <laughs> divorce of five trash cans for ultimate trashiness. Ike Turner or George Harrison <laughs> and uh, and Eric Clapton combined, you can get also four trash cans, whatever the case is. So um, it's, it's, it's just yummy. It's candy. It's, it's something that you can laugh about. And again, not high minded. It's, it's just fun. That's awesome. I'm, I've, I already have a list of people who I'm going to send that recommendation to who, <laughs> for whom it is right up their alley. So thank you for that. Um, so anyway, that is our show today. Thank you so much to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, as always, and our production assistant, Alex Barrett, for his incredible help and research. We really appreciate it. 
you can email us at thewaves at slate.com or tweet at us at June Thomas at Hannah Rosen. Christian, what's your Twitter? At Kristen Meinzer. Oh, well, there you go. At Kristen Meinzer, spelled M-E-I-N-Z-E-R. That's our show for today. For Kristen and June, I am Hannah, and The Waves will be back next week. Bye. Bye.